If we're going to be serious about 60, 70, 80% wind and solar, which are weather dependent, we are going to need radically different storage solutions that extend up to seasons. You are listening to the Siemens Energy Podcast Series. The energy sector is undergoing an unprecedented transformation, presenting both challenges and opportunities. The demand for energy is increasing worldwide. And at the same time, we must combat the effects of climate change and reduce CO2 emissions. On each episode, we bring you conversations with some of the world's cutting-edge thought leaders in energy and related subjects. Our goal is to help you understand energy, the challenges we face today, and what the future holds. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more resources. Siemens Energy is providing this podcast as a public service. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Siemens Energy. The views expressed by guests and hosts are their own, and their appearances on this program do not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Siemens Energy employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the views of Siemens Energy or any of its officials. So, dear viewers, welcome to our North American Energy Week from Siemens Energy. It's a pleasure to welcome you, and it's a particular honor to welcome also Secretary Dr. Monis today as our esteemed guest to discuss about energy, energy transformation, and a lot more what is linked to energy. And there's a lot of things, obviously, where energy plays a role in our today's society. And we discuss a lot about transformation. What does it mean to us? There will be a lot of changes coming. And who could better discuss this subject as Dr. Monis uh, really proven not only scientist, but also political person who has been Secretary of State, who has an enormously impressive history on passing by all the research institutions, which I always read in my books and have a lot of respect for. And he joins us today from the MIT. And uh, in this regard, has a long history in collecting the who is who in the research institutions, Stanford, Massachusetts, Boston, also joined the government under President Clinton and President Obama, and has contributed to multiple elements of energy, security, and other matters. In this regard, once again, welcome, Secretary Monis. It's a pleasure to have you with us, and I'm looking forward to a very interesting fireside chat on probably one of the most thrilling subjects we have in our generation to resolve, how do we bring actually energy to people while preserving our planet and serving a continuously increasing need for energy. And this is also how I would like to start the discussions as a question to you. How do you see this approach or this how to resolve this paradigm of, on the one hand, driving a more sustainable setup and at the same time providing hundreds of millions of people who do not have access to electricity today still with power and a prosperous society. Well, first of all, thank you, Christian, for inviting me to join you for this discussion. And I think, as you know, in fact, I spent some very memorable, nice times uh, not very far from where you are in Germany uh, as a Humboldt fellow. In terms of the uh, challenge that we face, I think the way to think about it is that it's pretty much universally understood that the march towards very deep decarbonization starts with electricity. If we don't decarbonize electricity fairly rapidly, we have very little chance 
to then extend electrification to other parts of the economy, light duty vehicles, uh, cars are an obvious example of that. While it may not be sufficient, it is certainly necessary that we do so. What we have seen is tremendous progress. Uh, Here in the United States, the very large utilities, the investor-owned utilities, for example, are already about 45% down in emissions compared to 2005, which is our general general benchmark. Uh, Of course, a lot of that has been the replacement of coal with uh, natural gas and renewables. And now you might say natural gas and renewables and at least the beginnings of a storage industry. And I go through that to say now, going to your very important question about the, let's say, nearly billion people with very little access to electricity, I think that this progress we are making in decarbonizing electricity says that we should have every opportunity, we will need support of the developing countries, but every opportunity to both provide energy and electricity access and to do so in a low carbon way. I actually think that the progress we are making needs to be and can be now translated into this energy access question. I might add that in terms of energy access and specifically electricity access, there are kind of two benchmarks that I think of. One is there literally are so many people with no electricity whatsoever. And for them, often a very, very modest amount, perhaps with distributed solar and a lead acid battery, providing some light in the evenings can be transformative, children doing their schoolwork and and the like. The second big benchmark is once in the developing world, people start to have maybe a few hundred kilowatt hours per year, then it's very important to reach the benchmark of a couple of thousand kilowatt hours per year. Because we all know from looking at the correlations, for example, of electricity access and things like the United Nations quality of life indicators, it's at a couple of thousand kilowatt hours that there's a transformation, not just for those simple acts like, for example, very important, children being able to do their schoolwork you know, at night, but actually now be able to get more modern cooking, more modern heating, relieve some of the burdens on women in particular to have them uh, participate more in the economy. So again, those are the two kind of benchmarks that I think of. And of course, we want to see all those people up to the second benchmark, the couple of thousand kilowatt hours per year. I would like to jump on a couple of points which you made because you spend it quite broadly. Let me maybe pick up with the developing countries. How can we achieve that developing countries go down this path in terms of increasing electricity supply immediately on a decarbonized setup, getting the financing for this in place? Obviously, we had in the Paris Agreement also a commitment to say the developed world and the developing world go hand in hand. What has to happen really to get traction into this What is working? What is not working? What else has to be done? Well, first of all, I might say that with the Glasgow meeting coming up, I look for two principal important results. Uh, One, which I'm sure we'll come back to later, is Glasgow has to be the COP meeting where ambition is not only expressed, 
but is backed up with action plans to dramatically accelerate decarbonization. But again, let's come back to that because the second is what you referred to directly. I believe Glasgow also needs to frankly finally put into action the support of the industrialized world for the developing world. It's in our self-interest in the end, if we are going to meet anything like the global warming benchmarks that we are talking about. There's also, of course, issues of ethical actions and raising up these many, many people without proper energy access. So number one is getting some action behind the commitment, you know, the $100 billion a year or so that's been talked about for some time. And then when you start to look on the ground, and I might mention, uh, Christian, that I uh, I, cha- I co-chair uh, something called the Global Commission to End Energy Poverty with the Rockefeller Foundation CEO and the head of the African Development Bank. What we found is in our first report is that very, very clearly the number one issue for this energy access, electricity access issue is the distribution system. The last mile, especially in the rapidly expanding urban environments in the developing world. I don't want to minimize it, but I would say the supply side is probably in a lot better shape than that distribution uh, of electricity in that last mile. I couldn't agree more. Obviously, we we see it uh, in the countries where we realize such projects. It all starts with the transmission. Allow me to jump on one other point, what you made, and uh, I would absolutely concur with your view saying it starts all with the electrification and we have to make sure the decarbonization of the electrification is really going to happen. However, we also know that there's a lot of other processes producing CO2 and decarbonization of electricity is a start, but not enough. In this regard, what do you see really from your perspective as the key technologies which need to be driven also in the other areas to decarbonize other sectors, other applications besides electricity? It's very important to raise that issue of the multiple sectors, in particular the sectors that I'm very pleased to see referred to more and more as the hard to decarbonize sectors. Because again, electricity, without minimizing the challenge, is certainly, I would argue, the sector that is that has the best line of sight towards the decarbonization. If we look at many parts of the transportation sector, the industrial sector, actually the building sector is one where I think it's fairly easy to imagine the technologies. It's just hard to get them put in place in a timely way. The agriculture sector, of course, is extremely hard. I believe when you think this through, that you reach the conclusion that while electricity and electrification are the lead horse in the decarbonization race, we also need a fuel. And I will use fuel in quotation marks in case we'd like to come back and discuss hydrogen, which is you know technically an energy carrier. But the point is, I just see no way to decarbonize the economy including those other sectors, without a fuel. There are a number of possibilities. Of of course, biofuels have been a promise for a long time without fulfilling the promise, I would say. There are newer approaches such as electrofuels using hydrogen and CO2 to provide potentially drop-in fuels. 
there is hydrogen itself as something that can play the role of a fuel in multiple sectors, but we need a fuel. I believe the uh, statements about full electrification of the economy are not helpful, frankly, because I think they deflect us from the need to innovate with lower cost, low carbon to no carbon fuels. Third, I would argue with electrification and fuels, we still are not going to fully decarbonize the economy. And so we also need negative carbon technologies, carbon dioxide removal. Of course, there is carbon capture and sequestration from localized sources like power plants and, and industrial facilities. But I believe that in the end, we will need negative carbon technologies that eliminate CO2 from dilute sources, namely the atmosphere and the upper layers of the ocean. In fact, we all know that this notion has attracted some detractors <laughs> who view it as a focus on offsets, and that is somehow a bad thing. Well, first of all, I'm not sure I understand that argument. But secondly, uh, I think the real point is that our growing commitments to net zero while very important, and I fully support the net zero goal, we also are being distracted a little bit by that goal in the sense that net zero is a point in time. That's not <laughs> the, really the point. Number one, we all know that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is a cumulative issue because of the very long residence times. And so how you get to net zero, the trajectory through 2030 and 2040 is very important, number one. And number two, we don't wanna stop at net zero. That's just a trajectory on the way to a economy-wide negative carbon uh, world. And it's clear, it's a tautology. You cannot have a net negative economy without negative carbon technologies. We should be working on that much, much harder than we are today, number one. And number two, we should not equate negative carbon technologies just with direct air capture, which is getting a lot of attention and I think is very important. But there are many, many other pathways to negative carbon and I think we need to work together to really make those viable, starting by the end of this decade and growing to a very substantial contribution by, by mid-century. Thank you very much for raising that point. And I have to admit, I'm not sure whether in the discussion, everybody is really aware of it on the way on how it is discussed, how important that element is. One takeaway for me is also we will need a massive amount of innovations also, a massive amount of new technologies. There is not one silver bullet. It's a diversity. With your, if you allow me to say, governmental head on, right, what are the boundary conditions or, or regulations you would see which would really foster this in terms of pushing forward the different type of technology development, but also maybe introducing new business models or really also bringing, tying private capital into these type of developments. So what has to happen 
in the boundary conditions of the system overall to drive exactly this. Uh, we could go on for a long time in responding to that question. Let me make uh, two points. One is, and I'll certainly say this from the U.S. perspective, although personally I think it's it extends much more broadly, including in Europe. I believe we need a fundamental change in the regulatory structures, the market structures of the electricity system as we go to a majority of variable sources, wind and solar. And there, your point about innovation, I would add, just to go back to that, I believe we are being very short-sighted, many of us, in thinking that somehow batteries solve the grid storage problem. It's not even close. And in my view, never will be. That is, batteries will play an important role in the, you know, the multi-hour part of the equation. But we need a very simple fact is that, especially where I live in Boston and where you live, or, or at least are working in Munich, uh, which is even farther north, it's a, a fact called latitude that uh, the solar resource, for example, is substantially higher in the summer uh, than in the winter. So if solar is going to be a big part of the solution, you are almost automatically driven towards a system view that includes seasonality. But in addition, on wind, and you know something about wind. Uh, so in the United States, we looked at Texas, which is by far the largest source of wind power in the United States. And we were quite surprised to find, in looking at the data, hour by hour dispatch, that in Texas, in the year that we looked at, there were nine days in a row with no wind in the state. This is called seasonality. Mm. <laughs> and actually, there were 90 days in the year with little wind in Texas. So it's a great resource for three quarters of the year and not so great for a quarter of the year. And so, again, this is not that we can't manage it, but we can't manage it without a system view and innovations that make much longer term storage uh, affordable. Now, that feeds back into your original question because those are energy electricity services that have not been part of the traditional regulatory or market structures. And I don't think we have learned yet how to modify those market structures uh, properly because frankly, in not addressing that problem, statements such as the marginal cost of wind and solar are zero, I find a bit distracting from the job at hand because it's a much more complex system. We will need firm power to complement, you know, whether wind and solar becomes 60 or 80 percent, I'm not going to haggle over the numbers. I have my own view, but whatever the case, we will need firm power and some renewables engineered geothermal could be in that category. Hydro is looking like it's more and more weather and climate dependent and perhaps getting, uh, you know, looking looking a bit less reliable. Nuclear, advanced nuclear, carbon capture and sequestration on fossil plants. And by the way, on nuclear, I might just add that at MIT on September the 8th, there was a very important announcement about reaching 20 Tesla magnets for looking at nuclear fusion. So there could be a lot of surprises here, big game changers 
like that. And we need to keep the innovation open, but we need to regulate with this system view of a reliable and resilient system. If I may switch to a second example, going back to your question, which I haven't forgotten yet, <laughs> I believe an absolutely critical question is also how to shape governmental policy and regulation in ways that unleash a whole new level of private capital in the energy transition. I certainly think the energy transition to, let's say, net zero by mid-century-ish has to be measured in the 100 trillion scale, maybe a multiple of that by mid-century. I believe that the capital, large pools of capital measured in the trillions, really do want to move in this direction. But I don't believe the policy structures reflect the very different risk-reward structures uh, and fiduciary responsibilities mm -hmm. uh, of those different pools of capital. A private equity fund, for example, and a pension fund do not have a similar calculus. <laughs> I think we need to get much more sophisticated in that, how the financial institutions are regulated, what kinds of incentives are provided, because frankly, we all know that uh, much of the low carbon technology that we will need uh, is obviously not in the money right now. Until we have supportive policy, and I believe supportive policy that recognizes the different imperatives of these pools of capital, that we will be impeding the flow of that capital in a, in a timely way. Well, I couldn't agree more to, to what you just said. And seeing that private capital will be massively needed, what's your expectation to the private companies, particularly now really in the next one, two, three years to come in terms of positioning the subjects, making it clear? So if you're looking on the private sector itself, maybe even with a North American view, right, what would be your expectation to the private sector, also seeing that we have thousands of customers joining us today who are present and who are driving the U.S. energy economy. So what would your pledge be to them? In the energy world, so many of the investments, purchases have pretty long timescales. That means that the chief risk officer should be looking down the road at the uncertainties in 10, 20, 25 years, that will be the time frame in which the success of various investments is, is judged. Frankly, I think we are already seeing some of that in the, in the fossil world, where there's an increased reluctance to invest in, let's say, infrastructure that will need at least 20 years to be paid back, and we don't quite know what that looks like. There's an interesting interplay to take that example, in the innovation world, uh, in the sense that, for example, there's a lot of focus on to what extent is infrastructure, existing or new infrastructure, usable in different contexts. So, you know, natural gas pipelines and hydrogen, let's say. And the reality is, we don't know a lot about that. And yet, that's the kind of hedge that can make an enormous difference in terms of investing in new infrastructure. That's just one example. But I think that those calculations are going on. I think it behooves the industry, 
to obviously, uh, as is being done, to think about how the business model evolves to provide some of my favorite words, optionality and flexibility to respond to the uh, changing policy picture, to the changing public attitudes. You know, Hurricane Ida and California wildfires, et cetera, are very much on the minds of Americans, as are the same phenomena in Europe, Germany and uh, Greece and Turkey. So I think that there's a significant chance that the public will also drive this change increasingly to, uh, to, to low carbon. One sector that is often discussed, particularly, uh, is the oil and gas sector in terms of the, the risk, if you like, to the, to the business model going forward. And my answer to that is, well, start making some real action plans for an evolving business model. Because those companies, they have tremendous capabilities and assets that can be part of the solution to the energy transition. Carbon capture and sequestration, the pipelines, the entire hydrogen value chain, engineered geothermal, um, offshore wind logistics, you can go on and on. And so I think that there's, it's, it's fairly obvious that there is some thinking going on in, in those directions, but I don't think nearly enough, frankly, and I think uh, being aggressive would be a good way of doing good risk management uh, in those companies. I might add one last point on this oil and gas question, the oil and gas companies, that I think, and I'm sure many others, and, and I think you think that this transition, energy transition, also has to be a just transition. And I have to say, I'll speak for the United States, significant transitions, often technology-driven, have not always been managed with a view towards possible displaced workers and communities. Well, that evolving business model for an oil and gas company, using exactly the capabilities and assets, including the human assets, that they have developed over decades is also a way of addressing that question of good jobs, people continuing to have good jobs, communities continuing to have the kind of cohesion that comes from major corporations that are part of the social fabric. So I think this, we have to stop thinking about this, quotes, downside, as opposed to the opportunity that's here uh, I think for everyone in the energy business to come together into a broad-based coalition that is looking to prosper uh, in the energy transition. No, thank you for this comment. And I think we always have to recognize we're looking into the biggest investment programs since industrialization. And it, it's really massively changing the world. Allow me to revert uh, to a completely different subject and maybe once again looking a little bit to the prior politician there. I prefer policymaker to politician, but anyway. Yeah, absolutely fine. But the policymaker, it's <laughs> also. Um, we've seen ourselves, and I think the industry has seen it uh, with COVID, significant constraints in the supply chain. We've seen it in wind. Uh, we've seen it in transmission with all the raw materials. We debated if we come to hydrogen on rare earth uh, materials on how we do it. So 
I hear louder, louder voices. Do we need strategic resources in terms of governments, in terms of managing these supply chains? So what is your view in terms of really if we want to so dramatically change our systems and need so many new materials also, and renewables obviously are much more material intensive than conventional technologies, do we need a different view to supply chains globally? I agree with that statement. My answer would be yes. I think uh, COVID brought that issue to the foreground with relatively low-tech items, personal protective gear and the like. But I believe that taking a step back and looking at the globalized supply chains, and I'm not against globalization, but the reality is, I think in many areas, including in the future energy transition, I think we've gone too far in creating supply chains that are not resilient to major dislocations. It's even unclear whether it rises to a major dislocation, but the ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal a little while ago created an enormous backlog. But now, and my friend Dan Jurgen did a recent op-ed on some of these questions, that for all kinds of reasons, including often the lack of being able to attract workers uh, back to, say, dock loading facilities is causing tremendous backup. Long Beach Harbor with, you know, 50 ships at anchor because they can't unload and the like. Another place very important for the energy business specifically, getting more and more attention, is the question of critical metals and minerals. I think there's been a little misunderstanding on some of that. The metals and minerals are where they are in the ground, and we can't change the fact that a country like the United States, let's say, is rich in some of them and does not really have any substantial resource for some others. We all know that one offshore wind turbine you know, has a ton of, of a uh, neodymium, for example. So these needs are great. But what's happened is not as much in the raw mineral, but in things like the processing. There has been, in my view, a way over concentration of that. Those are choices that are to be made. I think we have to look, we in the the industrialized world need to look at much more environmentally responsible access with diversity of supply for those metals and minerals. If we go back to the 1970s, we had the oil shocks. And back in those years, there was not a great diversity of supply. Well, what happened after that? The diversity of supply was increased dramatically on a decadal time frame. That was a response to, obviously, supply chain risks. I think we need the same thing, certainly in this example of the critical metals and minerals, but also, as I said earlier, in the simple, quotes, simple issues of being able to ship, unload, (laughs) It's not only unload the ship, it's then loaded onto trucks in the port, be able to move them out. This is not an anti-globalization or anti-China statement. It is a statement that resilient supply chains are critical to our economy 
and we should take the steps, the policy steps, the financial steps needed to value that kind of resilience. No, thank you. Very true statement. And obviously, this is, I know you are obviously also a security expert. This link in terms of energy with security, security of supply, but security of governments plays also into that. I have to say, I could go on for hours, obviously, with this discussion. I think we're pretty limited in time. So allow me to wrap it up with one question, just seeing your history there. What would you do if you come tomorrow back to office as Secretary of State for Energy, what are the two, three actions you would say from a U.S. perspective? You would say you would start immediately in terms of new policies, actions, ask, whatever. I would say number one for the Department of Energy, uh, in the energy transition context, the Department of Energy does many other things, as you undoubtedly know, but in the energy transition context, uh, number one is to be the steward of innovation agenda in the United States and to be the good partner in the mission innovation agenda that started in Paris. I was pleased to be part of that uh, team. Move that forward in some new directions. For example, we already mentioned carbon dioxide removal from dilute sources. That is not part of the mission innovation portfolio. As I've said, I think that's one of the three major pillars for, if I add energy efficiency and demand side management, electricity, fuel, CDR. To me, those are the kind of the big pillars of reaching success. And so I would be uh, hoping to stimulate major international collaboration in those areas. Secondly, while it is often controversial in a government context, I believe that we are in a situation, let's face it, we're fairly desperate to accelerate the pace of change. I believe that means that the department needs to look at the deployment programs in this decade, large-scale demonstration projects and deployment. Now, by deployment, what I mean is things like the loan program, for example. Back in the uh, earlier Obama period, one failed loan became a big fiasco. The reality is the loan program as a portfolio was extremely successful in deploying $30 billion of debt financing and doing its job, starting up some areas, bringing in private capital, and then being able to walk away from them and letting the private sector do the job. The clearest example of that was the department in 2009 and 2010 providing the debt financing for the first five utility scale solar plants. And now there's, I don't know, 60 or 70 and the DOE, the government are not involved in any of those. That's the kind of success story that I think we need more of. A third area which really needs and is getting from Secretary Granholm a strong focus is, which unfortunately was not very active in the four years preceding the Biden administration, and that is issuing energy efficiency standards across the economy. In the Obama administration, we accelerated 
uh, the issuance of those dramatically. And the modeling suggested that up to 2030, the collection of all of those efficiency standards, microwave backup power to electric motors, would result in about two and a half gigatons of avoided CO2 and over half a trillion dollars of reduced consumer energy bills. So that's a place where, which I think is, is extremely important. And fourth is more generally to really be engaged in those discussions that we had earlier concerning how to motivate private capital. That requires a lot of coordination. That's not, of course, it's not just DOE, a lot of coordination across the government with Treasury, with the Securities and Exchange Commission. But that, to me, is an all-hands-on-deck opportunity to bring in that capital. Thank you very much, Secretary Moniz. And it was really very, very, very interesting journey through a lot of different subjects. And I take it as a call for action. I mean, we will have this conference this week in terms of discussing with multiple parties on really what can be done. I think we hear loud and clear, strong voice now coming from the U.S., which is very good. I really welcome back the U.S. on driving the subject. That is something enormously important for the world. I'm also keen, obviously, to see going forward how things will be done in the U.S., because we need also these lighthouse projects and visible examples of change for people to embark on it. And I would strongly underline your pledge for see it positive. It's the biggest opportunity we can dream of to really build the system newly. In this regard, Secretary Moniz, many thanks from my side for enormously interesting discussion. I would love to have more hours with you continuing, but I think we are limited in time. And once again, many thanks for spending your time with us and sharing your views. I hope there will be a continuation of this discussion. And uh, we all also look forward to Glasgow to see whether the new things and the new views get kicked off there with the right momentum. So thank you very much for your time and ideas. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at siemens-energy.com forward slash podcast.